Good to be together for this Sunday as we're starting a new service that I'm calling Encountered by the Holy Spirit. You know, some of you know last week I shared what my life has been like for the last three months. Some of you know that I had a few surgeries this year. And uh, it was kind of interesting before, before my very first surgery, just this random little knee surgery where I thought I would be out for two, three weeks at the most, I kind of was journaling in my journal and I wrote down two days before my surgery that I was looking forward to this time uh, of sabbatical and I was looking forward because I thought that the Lord would visit me and give me a new perspective on life and ministry. Well, he did do that. But I didn't realize it would take him almost three months and I'm still in the process and multiple surgeries and many days in the hospital. But I can say one of the words that I came out of the hospital with that's really heavy on my heart is the word encountered. And I think a lot of us need more encounters with the Holy Spirit in our life. And that really became solidified to me last week when I'm reading through the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And suddenly you're finding these men and women that have been with Jesus for three years, that have seen Jesus on a daily basis. And Jesus said to them, look, I'm going to die, but don't worry about it. Three days later, I'll raise from the dead. And these disciples and followers acted like they'd never heard the words Jesus spoke to them. And when Jesus died, they're all distraught and they couldn't believe it. And then when they found out that he was resurrected from the dead, they're like, nah, that could never happen. And Jesus told them his very own words. And what did Jesus do to the disciples after they denied that he could raise from the dead? He encountered each of them. I mean, that's the compassion of Jesus, that he encounters people even though we go through doubts. And as followers of Jesus, that gives us comfort to know even if we get a little off track or even if we miss something in the word, that Jesus is there to encounter us. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can have confidence that his Holy Spirit wants to encounter us too. But I think many of us in the church, many of us are unintentionally lacking consistent experiences or encounters with the Holy Spirit. I think many times that we are missing it, and I think the Lord wants to encounter us so much more, but we kind of miss it. So I'm going to use an illustration today to explain um, what the normal Christian life should look like and to show you as well as something that is missing. This is an illustration from one of my former seminary professors, Dr. Chuck Kraft. And Dr. Kraft would use this illustration in most of his classes, and unfortunately I don't have the right prop, but he would, in our lecture hall, he would say, you look over there and you see that three-legged stool. Okay, I'm on a four-legged stool, but just imagine it's three-legged. And he would say to us, imagine, look at that three-legged stool. And he said, that stool, he said, imagine if you took, you're sitting on that stool and you took away one of the legs of the stool, what would happen? Well, you'd fall over and you'd be on the ground. And he says, that's what is happening in a lot of people in a lot of churches. They're falling over. They're not being effective and they're not being powerful. He said, there's three main legs to the stool of your Christian life or three main stools to your discipleship. And the first leg of the stool is allegiance. This is when you surrender your life to Jesus. This is when you become a follower of Jesus. You pledge your life to Jesus. And over the years, from the time that you get saved to your sanctification process, you go through this renewal. So on a daily basis, you surrender more to Jesus so you can become more like Jesus and grow in your relationship with Christ. 
We kind of got understand that. We understand that part of our Christian life, that I need to have this allegiance to Jesus. And we understand that there's things that get in the way and we got to work to be more like Christ. And the second leg of this, the Christian life is what's called the truth. And that's where we study the Word of God, we read the Bible, we go to Bible studies, we come to services, we become more saturated in the Word of God so we can learn more of what the truth is. And as we learn more of the truth, then we find that we find freedom from the lies and the deception. Our culture, our American culture, does like truth. We like knowledge, we like study, those are big values in our society. So we usually do pretty good in the American church of pursuing allegiance and truth. But there's a third uh, leg of the stool that sometimes is lacking in the American church. And Chuck Kraft would say, what's missing from the American church is often spiritual power. That so often we are missing the power of the Holy Spirit that's been promised to us. And sometimes we act in our church culture like maybe we don't need that as much as maybe they did in the first century. And Dr. Kraft, as his years of experience being a professor, would say that's why most churches are ineffective because they're not relying on the spiritual power that's made available to us. And we desperately need to have the spiritual power in the church. For one reason, a lot of us, we, it's easy for us to uh, be more influenced by the enemy than it is to be influenced by Jesus. So we need to be careful that way. So we need to be consistently seeking the power of God to transform us. We look at like the Apostle Peter. Here this good guy follows Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him one day? Get behind me, Satan. Peter's manifesting more of Satan's will, so Jesus has to say that to him. And we look at Ananias, here, a leader in the Old Testament, and Peter, Paul looks at him and says, why did you let Satan fill your heart? We need to be aware of that. Even as followers of Jesus, the enemy can influence our life that we need spiritual power to set us free. And second, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to lead us in all ways. And so in this series, I want to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about a lot about the power of God, and I want to talk a lot about spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict. And I'm not talking just about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But I want to talk about actively pursuing the Holy Spirit in our life, actively seeking the Holy Spirit to bring transformation to our life and transformation to our cities and equipping us. Because I think so many of us, it's easy to live in this American culture, we forget about the fact that we need spiritual power. In some ways, it kind of seems like we look in our American culture like if something is really spiritual, then maybe it's a little superstitious. And we like to shy away from that. And we don't like to engage in something because we don't want somebody to ridicule or mock us. But Jesus, he never treated Satan or he never treated demons as though they were myths. He didn't do that. He did not see as the spiritual realm as something to be ignored or overlooked. Instead, on a daily basis or consistent basis, part of his ministry was casting out demons. And part of his ministry was to set people free. Jesus saw the invisible realm. He saw the spiritual realm of darkness as evil forces that needed to be encountered, encountered and confronted so people could be set free. And that's what Jesus spent his time doing. Jesus never ignored spiritual warfare. Instead, he engaged in it on a daily basis to set people free. And Jesus has called each of us to do the exact same thing. And so often it's easy to be sitting on the stool of Christianity and not even recognizing that you've tipped over because you don't rely on the spiritual power that's made available to us. And I think we go to the book of Acts and we go to the words of Jesus where he said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
and you'll be my witnesses. I think sometimes we forget that we are called to be witnesses, that that is my identity, that as a follower of Jesus, I am a witness, and I'm not going to do it very good unless I have the power of God working in my life. And so during this series, we want to remember the fact that we are called to be witnesses, but that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I love in the book of Matthew 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus called his disciples, and what did he do? He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. We have the power. We have the authority to do what Jesus has called us to do, to do the very same things that Jesus did himself. And so during this series, I'm hoping that we would be encouraged I'm hoping during this series that we would be motivated. I'm hoping during this series that our gifts would be united and that we would learn more about the power of the Holy Spirit, but we would learn more about ourselves and what we're called to do. See, God has given each of us an invitation to become more like Christ, and I think during this series that we will identify a little bit more of how we represent Christ to this world. And I understand it is difficult. It's difficult sometimes finding a balance between the Word of God and studying and knowledge an experiential part of pursuing the things of the Holy Spirit. Because we've seen people get off balance on both sides of the equation. And none of us want to be the unbalanced person. So what times we sometimes say, I'm not going to do either one of them because I don't want to be off balance. Well, that's not going to be very good either. That's not going to help us to be effective witnesses. That's not going to help us to pray for people to see them set free. And it's not going to help sick people get well. So during this series, we're going to say, hey, maybe I'll take a risk of being off balance. Maybe I'll take a risk of looking a little foolish. And maybe at times during this series where we say, let's pray for an impartation of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand up and pray for something. I'm going to do it even though I might feel like I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Because we need to be desperate for the Spirit of God in our life. We actually need to be thirsty for the Spirit of God. That's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Am I thirsty for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? See, that is the question that Jesus asked his followers in the first century. In John chapter 7, Jesus is celebrating the feast, this Old Testament feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Some people call it the Feast of Booths. And they're celebrating it there, and Jesus makes this big declaration to the crowd and says, Are you hungry and thirsty? And I think we need to answer that question. Am I really thirsty for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life? See, the Feast of Tabernacles was this beautiful feast where all the Israelites would come to Jerusalem once a year. And why would they come? For two main reasons. Number one, they would celebrate the faithfulness of God. And they would celebrate the faithfulness of God, how he got them through the wilderness period, and they survived. And one thing that they would celebrate is how they were in the wilderness, they were in the desert, and what did God do? He provided thirst, a drink for them every single day. That's pretty amazing. You're in a desert, and the Lord miraculously provides water for you on a daily basis. So they would come for the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate the goodness of God. And as you celebrate the goodness of God, they would think, you know, if God took care of me back then, if God took care of grandpa and grandma back then, he's certainly not going to stop today. So part of the reason that they celebrated was to encourage them that God's going to continue. Another thing that they would celebrate during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was almost like a Thanksgiving. It was like a harvest kind of a theme. They would celebrate the fact that God provided rain for their crops. 
See, the Israelites knew if there's no rain, well, there's not going to be any crops. But they knew that the rain came from God. They knew that God was the one who provided every single thing that they needed. So they would come together to celebrate that God is so faithful to give us what we need individually and to give us what we need corporately. And they would celebrate the fact that God is so faithful. But the Israelites also knew that sometimes lack of water could be connected with their disobedience. And they're willing to be honest with themselves and to look at their life and to recognize if they didn't get much rain, it could be because of their behavior. And so part of this Feast of Tabernacles was they wanted to be right with God because they knew without a doubt that they were dependent on God for every single thing, from the rain and from the water they drank. And I think sometimes in our American culture, we forget that. We forget that everything we need is provided by God. That the rain that we need that's going to happen today and that the food that we need, it is provided by God. Not because I have a job or not because I can go to Meyer, but because God is faithful to provide what we need. So part of the ceremony that they did was this big water ceremony. So during this big feast, that the, the, the temple priests, they would come out of the temple with these big vats of water, pitchers of water, and they would pour it on the altar. And they would pour out this water on the altar, signifying that God sends rain and that God refreshes all people. And the people, the Israelites knew that that water represented the Holy Spirit. And the Israelites were desperate for the Holy Spirit because back in that New Testament, before the death and resurrection, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on prophet, priests, and kings. That wasn't available to everybody. And those Israelites knew, man, if I could get a little bit of the Holy Spirit, my life would be a whole lot easier. And they knew that someday the Bible promised that everybody would receive the Holy Spirit. So when they would come to the Feast of Tabernacles, they were hoping maybe today is the day. They would come with hope and anticipation. Maybe today the Holy Spirit will be poured out on me. So Jesus stands up before this whole crowd as, a, as a, the priests are pouring out the water. He says, look, if any of you are thirsty, come to me and I'll supply what you need. And he says, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living waters. This is what Jesus is announcing to the group saying, look, everything that you look to God to do, I'm the one who can do that for you. I am suddenly now this new intermediary that you have between God and yourself. But he asks the question, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the spiritual power in your life? And the Israelites knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. I think they're a little surprised that Jesus is suddenly the one that can fulfill that, but they knew what he was talking about because the Israelites were very familiar with Isaiah 44 that says, the Lord who made you and helps you, he says, do not be afraid, O Jacob, which he could say, do not be afraid, O Stella Grove, my servants, O dear Stella Grove, my chosen ones, for I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields, and I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and I'll bless your children. Now that's exciting news if you're an Israelite. You're going to get some drink, you're going to get rain, and he's going to pour out his spirit on you as well as your children. The book of Joel gives a similar prophecy that many of you are familiar with from Joel 2, where the word says, and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
That's exciting news if you're an Israelite. You're going to get the Holy Spirit, not just the prophets, priests, and kings, but this is going to be made available to everybody. And sometimes we don't have that same desperation in our church today. Sometimes we don't have that same desperation to be filled and equipped to be witnesses and to be people that would pray for healing. Sometimes we're not desperate that out of our hearts would flow rivers of living water. I think that is coming back, though. I think more people are getting desperate for the Holy Spirit. I think the churches are because I think we're watching the news and we're watching what's happening in schools and shopping malls and there is no other explanation to that besides that's the enemy at work. There's no other excuse for some of the crazy that's going on in our culture besides saying that is demonic. And I think we are realizing that we are not going to stop these things by being more political or by being more ornery or posting more things on Facebook, I think what we're realizing is that we are going to need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life so we can pray strategically and that out of our hearts would flow rivers of living water to bring healing and wholeness and deliverance to people around us. That is what we are realizing when we watch the news, that we are going to need the Holy Spirit because not only are we witnesses, but we are called to set people free. And I think we are desperate for more of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we want to see that happen. Because we understand that there are gaps between what people are doing and what God has called us to do. Each of us experience gaps in our life. There's gaps in my life. There's my be, the how I'm now and what I want to be. And we know the only reason, only way for me to get from here to where God wants me to be is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And sometimes we have to identify our gaps we need to be honest about the gaps in our life. But I think sometimes we get a little cautious about identifying our gaps because we think, what if nothing changes? What if God doesn't really move in my life to bring me from here to over here? And I think we need to have the desperation of the Israelites at the Feast of Tabernacles to say, but look what God has done in the past. He's going to keep doing it. He's not going to stop. God brought me water yesterday in the desert. He's going to bring me a cup of water again today. That is how we need to be. We need to be expecting the Holy Spirit to do something in our life. It's important that we see and that we understand that the world is desperate to experience the Holy Spirit, especially the younger generation. The next five minutes of my message, I think I shared this in my message about over a year ago, and I'm bringing it up again because it's so good, and I remember when I brought it up about a year ago, people all listened really well. And I talked about a survey that the George Barna Institute did, and I think it's worth repeating because we are called to be witnesses to a younger generation. And we need to know what this younger generation is asking for. See, survey after survey is telling us that the younger generation is looking for a spiritual encounter. They're sick of just study and knowledge. They want experience. And they are looking to us to provide an experience, a supernatural experience with the Holy Spirit. See, for decades we've been telling the younger generation how you need to get into heaven, what you need to do to get into heaven. And that, that's good news but this younger generation is saying, no, that's irrelevant to me right now. I'm not really worried about how to get into heaven. I'm not really worried about maybe in 50 years I'm going to need to cash that in. The younger generation is saying, I have so much anxiety right now. You need to tell me how is this good, good news going to help my anxiety? 
The younger generation is saying, I'm not experiencing peace in my life. This good news that you have, you better tell me how I can experience that right now. This is what the next generation is looking for. Maybe in my generation it worked well to look a little fear and say, hey, if you die today, do you know where you would end up? And I would say no and say, well, here's the message of Jesus. And I would say, great, okay, sign me up. The younger generation is saying, no, that's way down in the future. I need to know how to get it through today. So this good news that you're talking about, it better be relevant for me today. And that's what they are looking for. Let me read you this part of the study by the Barna Institute. Each generation must discover the gospel afresh for itself. What sounded like good news to previous generation often sounds like mediocre news to the younger generation. Greg is agreeing with me over there. See, I knew this was a good message. I like it when people nod. How older Christians explain the gospel often attempts to answer questions millennials and teens aren't asking. Previous generations ask questions like, how do I get to heaven? Or what do I need to do with my guilt? While the younger generation ask entirely different questions like, what does it mean for me to thrive as a human being? A couple of factors influence this shift. One is anxiety. Millennials and Gen Z have a higher levels of anxiety than any other generation. This is proven. This isn't just an opinion of George Barna. This is proven over and over again. And I forgot where I am. Okay, according to Dr. Betsy Nesbitt, such high levels of anxiety put them in a constant state of fight or flight. And as a result, young people have a hard time thinking too far in the future. Like a hiker in front of a bear who's not thinking about that project due next week or their plans for retirement. For many young people, questions like, what happens after I die? Simply aren't relevant. Yet. A second reason they are asking different questions is that in Western culture is slowly making a shift from a guilt and innocent culture to a shame and honor culture. The difference between shame and guilt is subtle, yet very profound. If you make a mistake in a guilt culture, it's just that. It's a mistake. If you make a mistake in a shame culture, you are the mistake. A lot of our kids are growing up in a shame culture that they feel like that they are a mistake. And they wake up with that reality. A shame culture asks different questions from a guilt culture. And the gospel speaks differently to a shame culture than it does a guilt culture. Teens and young adults are asking where they belong, how are they significant, how do they deal with anxiety, and what do they do with their loneliness? If our gospel can't answer those questions, it doesn't feel like good news. On the other hand, if it does answer those longings, they will be much more likely to receive it and share with others how God has impacted their lives. That is part of what we are called to do, empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, we need to demonstrate teaching. Good, sound teaching is really good. But we also have the next generation needs to experience the presence and the power of God. You can't replace one without the other. They need to live in harmony. And that's why earlier this year, I read the first sermon I did of the year. I read the scripture from Acts 1, verse 1, where the author of Acts, Luke, says, And I wrote to you in my first book, Theophilus, that everything Jesus began to do and teach. See, Jesus balanced experience with teaching. 
Jesus often did experience, people experience the gospel before he taught them the gospel. How did Jesus do that? Because he certainly had the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And we are called to do the same thing that Jesus did through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has called us to use. And it's time that we are desperate for the Holy Spirit in our life so we can demonstrate the gospel to the younger generation. It's time for us to do the stuff that the Bible talks about, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to people see set free. I love in Mark 16, verse 19, this is Jesus' ascension. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up to heaven and he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. And it didn't say that stopped in the first century. That was the expectation in the first century, and that needs to be our expectation as well, that as we preach the gospel, as we share the gospel, as we are witnesses, that God will confirm the gospel through miraculous signs. And it doesn't always have to be a broken arm is healed or a person sick in the hospital is healed, but sometimes it is for a person to see their anxiety reduced and for a person to see that their loneliness is, is taken care of or a person to see that they have a significance in their life. But see, sometimes it's so easy to get discouraged and say, well, I prayed for somebody, but it didn't seem to work, so I don't want to try that again. I don't want to look too foolish. It's easy to do that but you didn't do that with me. You all prayed for me so well. I'm not dead. I'm alive because of your prayers, because you visited me in the hospital, because you made me toast in the morning, because you sat with me in my delirium. You were filled with the Holy Spirit and you were desperate to see me made well. And I'm grateful to be the recipient and there's a lot of other people that want to be the recipient of your kindness and your love and compassion. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. I want to close with a story of Elisha. A hundred years ago, J.C. Ryle, he wrote a book on the holiness. And the last chapter was called Christ is All. And it's about the sufficiency of Christ. We don't often use the word the all-sufficiency of Christ in our vernacular, but mainly it means that Christ is a solution to every single thing, that Christ can take care of everything, that Jesus is the answer to every single one of our problems. And it's kind of easy to forget that sometimes, that Jesus is the answer. Sometimes we think we have problems that maybe are too big for Jesus to take care of. And sometimes I think the emerging generation thinks that they have problems that Jesus is irrelevant for. A lot of people look at the church and say it's just irrelevant. But we can change that. I love the story in 2 Kings that shows that God is way bigger than anything we can imagine. The story shows us that what's happening in the invisible realm is way bigger than what you can see with your own eyes. In 2 Kings 6 verse 14, here's the story. So one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried out to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. 
the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots on fire. This is a great and a powerful story. See, this is a situation. The army of Syria has surrounded Israel, and Elisha's servant was distraught. He's looking around and saying, this isn't good. See, now in here, the translation, it says, oh, sir, what will we do now? But if you take a much more literal translation of the Hebrew, he really says, oh, no, we're all dead. (laughs) He looks around and says, we're all dead. And notice Elisha is looking at the exact same thing. And what is Elisha's response? He says, don't worry. There's more on our side than on their side. How does Elisha know that? They're both looking at the exact same thing. See, Elisha's been with the Lord long enough to know that he has to look beyond what is visible to see what is invisible going on behind the scenes. So what does Elisha do to give the guy the ability to cope with life? He prays that this man's eyes would be open so he could see what's happening in the spiritual realm. He prays that he could see that the Lord is more victorious than any weapon formed against you. He prays that this guy's eyes would be, his servant's eyes would be open so that he could see the invisible realm. And God answers that prayers. And when Elijah's servant's eyes were opened, he didn't see a smaller Syrian army. Instead, he was able to see God's invisible army. He was able to see God's angels with chariots and swords and ready to bring victory. Because God opened his eyes to see what's going on in the invisible realm. And sometimes our eyes need to be open to what's happening in the spiritual realm as well. It's easy to look at the news and say, oh no, we're dead. It's easy to look at what's happening in our culture and say, oh no, we're dead. It's easy to look at what's happening to my kids and say, oh no, that doesn't look good. But our eyes need to be open to see the spiritual realm. And when God answered that prayer for Elisha that his servant could see in the spiritual realm. But there's a little interesting detail to this story that sometimes it's easy to overlook. See, this is a fun, good story. Suddenly the servant's eyes are open and he could see God is way bigger. But the city that that happened in is a city that's called Dotham. Dotham is the exact same city where Joseph, you know, the young man with the coat of many colors that his brother sold him into slavery, that's the same city that he was thrown into the pit. Now what's interesting is when Joseph was thrown into that pit, he prayed that God would rescue him. He prayed that God would come and intervene in his life, and, well, that didn't happen for many, many more years. The same city that Joseph prayed to be rescued and he had to wait as the same city that Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open, and miraculously, instantly it happened. See, Joseph was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He's put in jail. He's forgotten by the butler. He spends many, many years in jail. That had to be pretty frustrating. But see, sometimes the situations that we are praying for, we often don't understand the long the big story. See, if Joseph would have got out of jail right away or got out of the pit right away, there's an entire nation that would have suffered. Joseph remained in prison. Joseph remained in some bondage because it was better for his family and it was better for the nation that he was part of. 
See, God in his strategy knew that it would be better to keep Joseph in that cell a little while longer. Better to keep Joseph in a little bit of a situation. Now the Bible says that God was with Joseph while he was in those situations. And that God gave him his favor, but Joseph had to wait. And sometimes we forget that some of the prayers that we are praying for ourselves, it's not just about us, but it's about our family. And it's about the people that we're a part of. Because the ultimate goal of Joseph's story was to rescue the Israelites, was to rescue his own family. And so it's easy sometimes when we say, I want to trust in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, yeah, but I prayed and nothing happened. But maybe part of your prayers is because God is doing something that's going to take longer to accomplish his bigger purposes. Sometimes it's fun when you can pray like Delisha did and suddenly the guy can see everything in the visible realm. But we often don't know the end game that God is after. We are just called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be equipped by the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses and to be people that want to see other people set free. And we're going to trust that God's going to do it in his timing, in the right timing. But we have to be a people that don't give up just because it doesn't instantly happen. We have to be people that say, you know what, it's more important than just that person, but it's for their family that they're involved in. And I hope that gives some encouragement to some of you who might be struggling personally in your life, and you're like, when is God going to answer this? How much longer do I have to wait? You might feel like a Joseph, and you want to be much more like Elisha's servant. Maybe God is doing something deeper in you because it's going to benefit your family or benefit your community. We don't know but we can trust in the fact that God is very strategic in his timing. And it's interesting to me that both of these major events happen in the city called Dotham. So let's pray. And let's ask God to open our eyes so that we can see in the invisible realm. That we have a perspective that's beyond our sight and sound and taste and our natural senses. That God would encourage us to see things spiritually so that we know how to pray for other people. So, Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says, and someday I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all people. And, Lord, I thank you that we live in that era that you have poured it out on all people. And we thank you, Lord, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your older people will dream dreams. And we thank you, Lord, that we live in the era of your Holy Spirit. Lord, but I pray that you'd help us to be like the Israelites, that we would be desperate to have your Holy Spirit penetrate every part of our life so we could be witnesses and that we could be people that are used to set the captives free. But God, I'm going to pray today like Elisha prayed for his servant, that our eyes would be open to see what's going on in the invisible realm. That we would not be stuck with just seeing things through our natural senses, but Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see what is going on in the spiritual realm. So we know how to pray, so we know how to intercede, and we also know how to experience peace in the midst of war, in the midst of calamity. God, I love that your word says, I have given you authority. God, help us to use the authority that you have given to us to wage effective warfare to see people set free. Help us to use the authority that you've given us to see the sick healed and to see those that are in bondage come into freedom. God, I pray that you would move in this body today with the power of your Holy Spirit and with people that are online watching today or maybe in the later in the week, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit so that we can do what you've called us to do.
And Lord, I'm asking to you that you would give us the boldness that you gave to your disciples in the early church, that we would risk our reputation, that we would risk our comfort so that we could be the witnesses that you've called us to do. God, would you move mightily on us? Lord, you've told us that you've given us spiritual gifts. Lord, we have everything we need. Lord, help us to recognize the sufficiency of Christ in our life so we rely on Christ and we look to him to answer every single one of our prayers. And I want to pray for each of us today too that God would equip us to meet the next generation that we would know how to minister to the next generation. And I know we all, I read that quote from George Barna. I think we all agree with it, that that is spot on, but we're like, I still don't know what to say. So if you want the Holy Spirit to move in your life in that way, why don't you stand up and let me pray for you. Let's pray that God would equip us in a way that maybe is beyond our expectation that we could minister to the emerging generation that we would know what to say to a younger generation that's saying, I'm so filled with anxiety, I'm so filled with hopelessness, I feel so lonely, and I don't know how to thrive. I don't know what to say, but the Holy Spirit knows how to speak through us, and that out of our heart could flow rivers of living water. So, Father, we come to you today, Lord, as we stand in your presence, God. We are asking that you would equip us to be your witnesses to the next generation, to the emerging millennials, to the emerging Gen Zs, and to the teenagers, and the little five-year-olds as well. That you would equip us, Father God, to know what words to speak, and prayers to pray, and, 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 and truths to share. But Lord, help us to know what experiences to share with this generation. God, we want to see more revival in this merging generation. We want to see more young people come to Christ, but we also want to see them experience their anxiety loosening. We want to see them set free from anxiety, free from loneliness. So Father God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on each of us today as we come to you desperate today, Lord, saying we need you to fill us so we can minister to the next generation. God, would your Holy Spirit blow as wind on each of us today, Lord, to equip us and to give us courage. As we get in situations, Lord, may we have words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic words. May we be like Elisha and know exactly what to pray. That servant realized that day, man, I can see I have an experience I never had before. Lord, help us to know how to minister your Holy Spirit to this generation who's saying kind of what, what Elijah's servant said, I'm dead. There's a lot of hopelessness in our culture. God, use us to minister. Use us to encourage and comfort and speak truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.